Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, then please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Coming up on this week's New European Podcast, the journalist and broadcaster John T. Bloom on the Brexit disasters being concealed by the terrible events in Ukraine. That includes a crisis with Britain's farmers. And we'll be discussing why John T. thinks, and I know a lot of you disagree with that, that Keir Starmer is right to rule out Labour calling for an immediate rejoin. After that, of course, more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers and putrid pundits go into our hall of shame. But first, I want to talk about comparisons, and that's because of James Cleverley. He's the Minister of State for Europe, which is a bit like making poor old Keith Flint from the prodigy the Minister for Fire Safety. James Cleverley's been challenged this week, and rightly so, on the number of Ukrainian refugees we've allowed into the UK, whether it's been suggesting that Ukrainians could come over here if they were willing to pick fruit or our non-existent visa centres in Calais and then Lille served by our non-existent free trains. We've lagged behind other countries on this and we've lagged behind other countries too on imposing sanctions against Russian oligarchs just as we may have been ahead of other countries in the push to partially ban Russia from SWIFT the global messaging system for financial transactions. When Robert Peston pointed out the cock-up over refugees uh, on Twitter. This is what James Cleverly replied. Robert, why are you doing this? UK, EU, USA and others have been working closely on sanctions. It's not a competition. And on the Today programme the other morning, he said this. It's very unhelpful when people say they've done more and they've done less. And the thing is that there is something in what James Cleverly says there. It's unhelpful, especially among partners, colleagues, friends, to be saying constantly, I'm doing better than you, you're doing worse than me, my ambition always outstrips yours, you always achieve less with the same results. But of course, that's what the government that James Cleverly is part of does almost every single day. Jacob Rees-Mogg tweeted last weekend, the City of London leads the way in the effects of sanctioning Russian banks. And then he tweeted that with a graph that showed only that Russian money had taken hold in Britain in a way that other EU countries and the USA wouldn't have allowed. And Boris Johnson has said 
Britain is leading the world in defiance of the odious war Putin is leading in Ukraine. Grant Shapps says, we're the world leader in humanitarian aid. Nadine Zahawi, humiliated by the former Danish PM on Question Time the other night when he said Putin sees Britain leading the way in terms of coordination. None of these things are true. It wasn't true either that we would have a world-beating track and trace system, although I suppose it did lead the world in terms of cost and inefficiency. And neither did we lead the world in our response to net zero, as Johnson has claimed, or in the sharing of vaccines with developing countries, as Johnson has always claimed. And claiming everything we do is world-beating, it cheapens the moments when we actually do lead the world. When it came to approving a COVID-19 vaccine, we actually were world-beating. But it's an achievement that's buried under a pile of false claims. And it's also dangerous to say that everything we do is world-beating. It makes it difficult to accept mistakes when they're made, and then impossible to learn from those mistakes. Which brings us back to another thing that James Cleverly said on Twitter this week in response to Robert Peston. James Cleverly wrote, 2016 is calling and it wants its Brexit debate back. In other words, he suggested that Robert Peston is doing Britain down when he says the EU is doing better on refugees than Britain's mealy-mouthed, badly coordinated, embarrassingly ponderous response. It's a telling thing for James Cleverly to say because flip it over and it gets to the heart of what this is really about. One, there's a determination from Brexiteers to pretend that everything the UK does is better than how the EU does it. And two, there's a determination from Brexiteers to pretend that Britain leads the world in absolutely everything not just in things like science and the arts where we do punch above our weight, but things where we plainly don't. Blackpool Tower isn't as good as the Eiffel Tower. We behave like a middle-aged man who's worried that he's got a small penis, who's driving a loud, flashy sports car to broadcast to everybody that he's really got a huge penis, when truly he had an average penis all along. A cock and bull story. That's the Brexit debate in a nutshell. Before we go to John C. Bloom, I want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, 
What can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is available to stream or download in the same new European feed you found this episode. And if you want to support us to do more brilliant journalism like The 27, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now I'm joined by Jonty Bloom, who writes about the effects of Brexit every week in The New European. Jonty is a writer and broadcaster whose previous roles include spells as BBC business correspondent and BBC Europe correspondent based in Brussels. Uh, Jonty Bloom, the, the awful events in Ukraine sort of naturally mean that there's even less coverage of the damage that Britain is, is, uh, is being inflicted on by, by Brexit. But Brexit is making our own response to those events in Ukraine even less effective, isn't it? When you look at the immigration system and you look at checks on donations of physical things. Yes, it, it, some of it depends on what the government is trying to achieve. It, it beggars belief that the, um, the asylum system for Ukrainians who are fleeing the war is this bad by accident. I mean, you know, the government is obviously terrified of opening the gates. Uh, because it's it's um, you know it's elected by populists who who want to desperately control immigration and don't don't see really what a, what the difference in that and asylum seekers uh, is and and then yes you're right at the borders we've we've had numerous reports of delays getting uh, donations uh, across the channel there's not there's no problem getting them from Calais to Ukraine mm-hmm. it's getting them from Dover to Calais which is is quite damning really isn't it. Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's incredible, isn't it? And obviously, people. Uh, well, the stark contrast isn't there with Ireland, where um, not only not only are, are refugees being housed in Ireland effectively and, and quickly, but donations donations of the youth, things that normally happen when uh, when you've got a humanitarian crisis like this, food, blankets, all those kind of things are, are all passing fairly quickly from uh, from uh, from Ireland over to to France and then through Poland. So in this week's edition of the New European, you, you're writing about a Brexit story that you say would have made the headlines in, in better times. What exactly happened at the National Farmers Union conference? It sounded a lot more exciting than I imagined NFU conferences might have been uh, in the past. Yeah, I suppose it was because um, kind of in, in the past, what would happen is that the NFU is, was, was really seen as like the Conservative Party with its Wellington boots on. I mean, you know, if you look at a political map of the UK, it looks as though the Conservatives control 90% of the country because they control 90% of the countryside, or at least in England. They do. You know, these these places would elect a pig with a blue rosette and um, people have huge majorities and are, are perfectly safe. Uh, and yet uh, the farmers have in the past been able to use that to basically portray themselves as protectors of the countryside and, and also benefit from uh, very large subsidies and lots of other grants and support and all kinds of other things, which was done through the, the common agricultural policy. The history of the common agricultural policy is quite interesting in that, you know, when the when the EU started or the EEC started, it, it took up about, uh, agriculture to, took up about 90% of the funds, uh, which considering it was a small and declining uh, sector was quite amazing. But basically it was set up to support French farmers. Hmm. Uh, with German money, and when Britain joined, they basically we had to adopt the same system, uh, which was quite profligate and, and wasteful, and it's been reduced over time. But farmers did very, very well out of being in the CAP, 
and then all turned around and 60% of them voted for Brexit because they were told that they'd get more money with less form filling. And also they were spun all the usual stuff about, you know, sovereignty and all that. But they now turn around and say, well, you know, we were promised that we would have exactly the same access to the EU as before. And we were promised we'd have even more subsidies than before. Uh, And we were promised that we would have no problem finding workers to pick crops and, and tend the fields. And none of this is happening. And the government says, tough, basically, there's the government's line. Um, you know, some people who were campaigning for Brexit told you that, but were not bound by it. And it is quite extraordinary. It's, it's not the only business organisation this is happening to. Not only are they not being listened to, but they're told to basically shut up and be cheerful about it. Uh, or the government won't talk to them. <laughs> the government is just uh, telling people, this is, this is the Conservative Party used to say, it isn't politicians' job to tell businesses how to run their affairs. <laughs> which it now basically says, yes, it is the government's job to tell them how do you run your affairs. We know better than you do. Shut up. Yes. Quite staggering, really. I mean, it's, I was watching bits of this and the, the faces look very different. Minette Batters does not look like um, a, a sort of trade union, uh, somebody who was speaking to the TUC um, uh, Congress in 1974. But but some of the language is very similar. You know, she's, she's, the, she's the, the, the head of the, the NFU. She said that the pig farming... Policy is an utter disgrace and a disaster. Uh, poorly designed changes to immigration policy. Lack, the government is lacking strategy and a clear vision. Uh, she said that her relationship with George Eustace, who is the DEFRA minister, is fraught. Uh, accused him of uh, a produ- a, a one, oh she she asked him to produce a plan that preempts crises rather than repeatedly creating them. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary stuff, really. Yeah, it, it is. And to be fair to Minette, I met her before she was president of the NFU. I did a documentary for In Business on BBC Radio 4 um, shortly after the referendum, but before we knew what we were going to get, uh, looking at this claim that we could just join uh, the World Trade Organization and leave every other organization, that would be fine. And luckily, we didn't get that because the the conclusion we came to was it would wipe out agriculture in this country almost overnight, almost altogether, because there isn't a produce that it makes that can't be done more cheaply somewhere else. Mm. So you would be flooded with New Zealand lamb and Australian wheat and uh, Argentinian beef and, and and Brazilian sugar, and everybody would go out of business and the country country would just return to pretty much a wilderness. It's not that bad, but um, they're just not getting what they want. So the, the trade deal with um, Australia and New Zealand, is going to knock something between 3 and 5% off beef and sheep farming. They'll just go bust. Uh, that, and that's just two small trade deals. And she basically points out that the farmers are being sacrificed. Uh, the Liz Truss, when she was the, the secretary um, in charge of negotiating these deals, basically uh, was quite successful in rolling over deals and negotiating new ones because she didn't ask for anything. Mm. She, she just, she just the, sign, the sign of success was having a trade deal. She didn't, didn't care about what was in it really, really much as far as I can see. And so the farmers got, well, basically um, shafted. They're not, it's not a very big sector of the economy. It's less than half of 1% now. Um, so not many people will notice. But this is a complete betrayal of what they were told was going to happen. And uh, they, they fear that, that, that this is just Trojan horse because um, if, you, if you then negotiate a trade deal with America, the first thing America is going to say, as a massive agricultural producer with massive agricultural votes in the senate is we want complete access for our wheat and our beef and our our chicken and our, 
etc cetera, etc cetera. much of which much of which isn't produced to our standards so it's cheaper much of which will put british farmers out of business and then the real pain the real worry for the food industry which is actually a quite a big industry food production is the largest manufacturing industry in the uk is that none of these things like um, hormone beef and chlorine washed chicken is is at least is acceptable at all to the eu and so you would this stuff would come into the uk put uk farmers out of business and then if you put it in a product that was sent to france you wouldn't be able to sell it in fact you wouldn't be able to let let it you wouldn't be able to get it into france and and so the food producers would have to basically show absolutely guarantee with endless amounts of red tape and form filling and inspections that there was none of this american stuff in their in their products so it wouldn't just damage the farming industry it would damage the food production industry immensely as well and and you can hear the frustration from Minette Batters and others that no one seems to be taking this into account. Nobody seems at least a bit worried about it. No one seems to understand it. Uh, it is really quite amazing. And, I mean, the pig farmers were, were particularly vocal. There was a, a, an exchange between a, a pig farmer, I think, and, and George Eustace when he was doing his Q&A with... Minette batters the, the, the pig farmers it's 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 not well it, I mean the standards and the trade deals affects them but they are still concerned about the uh, the lack of the the migrant workers of, of the past what what are the result, ongoing results of the lack of those migrant workers it's it's the, the result is that um abattoirs are grinding to a halt you, you yeah. no no British worker really wants to work in an abattoir or not many many very many of them do it it's very reliant on immigrant labor uh, probably transient immigrant labour uh, from Eastern Europe, and that's been stymied by Brexit. Uh, and so they've had to slaughter, they've had to cull. I think it's forty thousand pigs and just throw the carcasses away. And there's another two hundred thousand which are stuck on farms, uh, which should have been slaughtered by now. And they're just getting bigger and bigger, and costing the farmers more and more to feed when they should have been killed by now because it's not economical to make them any bigger. Hmm. So the farmers are losing money on all of those. And there's no sign of it getting much better. In fact, there's a considerable sign that it's going to get worse because the government has yet to introduce all those agricultural tests, the sanitary and phytosanitary tests at the borders with the EU, which it has promised to do. And I think they're coming in later this year. That, that will mean masses, masses of inspections at the borders by vets. And we don't have enough veterinary surgeons to do that. It's the kind of work that was traditionally done by immigrant vets because British ones go to nice British universities and um, want to work in the countryside or look after kittens and puppies and things like that. They don't want to work in a huge dock opening up lorries and, and checking a thousand sheep. It's, it's not particularly much fun. Uh, it's probably quite well paid and immigrant vets can come over and have a quite good living doing it for a short period of time and then go back. And that, that's what, you know, the kind of vets we use to attract for that kind of work. But there aren't anything like enough of them at the moment. And that's that's the possibility there is that the exports will basically grind to a halt if we can't do the tests. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of farmers are going to have to give up their the things that that they and their families have done for generations, basically, aren't they? And 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 you you already mentioned that subsidies are not quite as generous as they were painted, certainly not as generous as, as the ones under the CAP. So, I mean, what is the new subsidy regime that the government's proposing? What, what, what are farmers now being going to be paid to do? 
Um, and and what makes that so much worse? And, and what's the kind of the you know what's what's the future? What's what's Michael Gove had a, a great future of the, the the future vision of the future of farming, where it was all about rewilding and, and people would would be happy sowing seeds in their fields and all of that. What's happened to all of that? Uh, well, there is a, there is a large part of that, but of course it's it's kind of counterproductive if you if you pay farmers not to grow crops but to rewild and look after the soil and, and things like that much of which is important, uh, don't get me wrong, that is important, but they're not actually growing any food, they're basically being paid for looking after the countryside. Hmm. And then when they do grow f- food, the farmers are very upset because basically the subsidies for doing that don't seem to be anything like as generous as they were when we were members of the EU. So they're basically saying there isn't any profit in it. The Treasury has squeezed the um, subsidies um, to the point where people will bas- basically be growing food for nothing. Uh, won't, you won't be able to make a profit out of it. Uh, and they, they argue strongly that the money available uh, should be rebalanced so that more of it goes to subsidies to produce food and less of it goes to subsidies not to produce food. Mm. So, so in theory, you have a double whammy. I mean, interestingly enough, we, we started off talking about Ukraine. Russia and U- R- Ukraine ex- export 30% of the world's wheat. Yes. Or the excess wheat, the stuff they're exporting. Um, that, that affects us. I mean, the, the price of international wheat and barley and everything will have shot up because of um, the invasion of Ukraine. It's far more important for countries like Lebanon and Egypt and Syria and so on, which spend small fortunes importing enough wheat to feed their population. And they might not be able to do it, might not be available, let alone be able to afford it. But it does point out, you know, if if you wanted to do anything at the moment, you should probably be telling farmers to plant everything they can because the world prices are shooting up and we're going to need the food. Uh, and the, their basic argument is this isn't a, this isn't a system that's you know fit for purpose that it just doesn't encourage them to to grow stuff either because it pays pays them more to set set land aside or there isn't enough money in in it when they do grow food hmm. and you know farming one of the first first reports i ever heard on farming many many years ago i think it was in the 70s was by a foreign correspondent at the bbc who said farmers the, the world over are all the same they wind down the window of the bmw to tell you they're on the breadline um so you know you have to be careful there is a lot of crying wolf from the farming industry over a you know, very, very long time. And it's true, they became very dependent on the idea that they needed subsidies in order to f- promote food security, that the Britain had nearly starved to death in the Second World War and they needed to grow more and more. That's always been a bit of a, uh, a red herring because even in the Second World War, we didn't produce anything like enough food to, to feed ourselves. We um, were reliant on imports and che- cheap and plentiful imports. Uh, and we and we still are now. We only produce was it fifty or sixty percent of the food we need, uh, and there's not much pr- chance of us growing hundred percent of it. But the farmers became very used to this idea of them being mod- mollycoddled and paid a lot of money, and then portraying themselves as patriotic and part of the defence system in that they were feeding the the population. In fact, they were very well paid for a very very long time, and then they vo- they voted Brexit because they thought they were going to get more subsidies. So s- sometimes you don't feel that sorry for them. But it's also true that. Um, the countryside is like it is at the moment because it's farmed and it's inhabited and you want to keep people on the country. Vast areas of Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland and the Peak District and all kinds of areas like that would be basically deserts, un- totally unpopulated if you didn't keep farming on that land. And there would be immense consequences for flooding further downhill and all kinds of factors that should be taken into account. You know, the Lake District looks like it does because it's farmed. And so does the Peak District and the Scottish Highlands and so on. So there has to be a balance between keeping people on the land, allowing them to make a profit, and the mixed 
purposes of you know pr- producing food and protecting the environment. And the farmers are just outraged, just outraged that they don't think that balance is right or that anyone is listening to them when they say it's wrong. Are they outraged enough, do you think, to not vote Conservative in the next general election? <laughs> well, that, that's an interesting question. I was thinking about it when I was writing that piece about Keir Starmer and yes, and which Sir we'll Davey. Come on to in a second, yeah. yeah, which we'll come on to in a minute. But if you look at the Lib Dems, there are quite a few areas of the country where they are second to the Conservatives, and we're talking about rural areas. So they had traditional strengths in the southwest, so Cornwall and Devon, um, and in Scotland, Scotland's rural areas and some others. But um, I wouldn't say there's a danger because the, the majorities are just so huge. Mm. And actually, agriculture is probably not, not even the largest industry in, in these areas as well. So you're talking about prosperous commuter villages and retirement areas and you know these are natural conservative homelands and they're not always dependent on farming but they do also like to think of themselves as being the countryside and that those urban elites don't understand our ways and we're special and we're different and thank god the conservatives recognize that and support us and at the moment the conservatives don't seem to recognize that and they don't seem to be supporting them so there must be a danger that some of these previously rock-solid, safe Conservative seats just aren't as safe as they think they are. Yes, and in the fishing areas uh, too, I, I, I would have thought. Which does bring us on to, to you know, I mean, it's still the Met Police willing, it's still likely to be Boris Johnson versus Keir Starmer at the, the next election. And obviously, you, you mentioned the article that you wrote for us a week earlier, which has caused quite a bit of controversy among new, new European readers. I think we uh, listeners to this podcast, I think we expected that. When you when you write that Keir Starmer is right to say that Labour shouldn't campaign immediately for rejoin, does that mean to never rejoin? What exactly does it mean? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't mean never. Um, it just means it can't be done at the moment. Uh, and I can't see it being possible in in you know even the near future a couple of elections i don't think yes i think it would make those single issue elections wouldn't yes it? The, the, the british public i mean i know i'm obsessed with it and you know yeah. you probably are and a lot, awful lot of the readers are but the large part of the population is bored to tears with brexit uh, and as i say that's how that's how boris johnson won the last election he just said vote for me and it all ends hmm. uh, you know it'll be a done deal that's it and we'll just dust our fat hands and get on with it of course, he was lying. I mean, it, wasn't, it could never be like that. Um, but that was a very popular message. And Labour and Lib Dems have to take it on board. People don't want to refight Brexit six years after it's, it, the vote was had, let alone eight or ten or whenever the next election is. Uh, it's moving down the um, list of priorities for voters. Yes. Back down to the position it had before we had the referendum, when, frankly, no one cared, except for a small group of um, obsessives in UKIP. And it's, there's no way that we could rejoin. I mean, who would let us? Who really wants us back in the tent? Not, not just because we, you know, we were a pain in the neck and they've gone through six years of negotiating with us and now we want to reverse it and all that kind of stuff, which would be an immense pain and you know, very complicated. Um, but because um, we were pretty difficult members when we were in last time mm. and we'd be even worse this time. Can you imagine what the press would say about Every concession, every bit of red tape, every agreement, every every payment, it would be awful. And, and then the big elephant in the room is that the Conservative Party has been taken over by its 
UKIP wing and would campaign to leave again at the earliest opportunity. So the EU would be saying, well, how long are you going to rejoin for? Because if the Tories win an election again, you're leaving again. We're not, you've got to make your mind up. You're either in permanently or you're, you're out permanently. And at the moment, I think they'd, they'd be much... We just have to stay out. I can't see why they'd let us in, why they would think we would stay in permanently, um, who really wants us back, um, and, and why the British electorate would want to spend another four or five years renegotiating entry. They're all completely bored with this. They've got to move on and... And basically, the line that I think would work would be Brexit has happened, but it's been organised by complete ideological idiots. Just let us get in there with a bit of common sense and we can we can make it a lot better. And I think they could make it a lot better, but they can't rejoin, I don't think. I just don't think it can be done. So what what, what is that make will make Brexit will make Brexit better? What what does that platform look like? What would what would be some of the some of the easy things that they could do? To- well, lots lots of them are very easy. Like um, uh, as we were talking about the the farming standards, SPS standards. Yes. Basically, ninety percent of the red tape in, in uh, between the UK, uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland is down to those farming issues. And at the moment, there isn't a cigarette paper between mm. British farming standards and EU farming standards and food standards and all the rest. And there's no particular reason why we would want to move away from them very much anyway, because if we did, none of our produce would be be capable of being sold in the EU. So why do we have our own system? Why do we have these checks? You just say, we'll, we'll agree to the same uh, rules and regulations as you do. And those, those disappear. And an- another example is the CE mark, which is on basically every, every bit of kit you own, which means it's uh, certified to be safe to be sold in... The, the EU, the UK is is going to recreate that as its own with its own standards mark, which is uh, will follow the pre- pretty much the identical rules. So it's just it's just doubling the red tape, doubling the testing, doubling the all, all these things uh, for no good purpose because we agreed those standards in the first place. Everything that's made in this country is made using those standards at the moment, and what will happen is. If, if Britain cuts those standards, manufacturers will still produce to European standards because they can sell in, in the EU and here because they'll automatically pass the standards here because they'll be higher than the standards. There's no saving to be made by this. It's just cost. And it trouble is it goes to this ideological fantasy of the Brexiteers that uh, there's miles and miles of red tape and ex- worthless expense and, and bother that can suddenly be removed and indus- British industry will be free and will massively expand it's rubbish so there's things like that there's reach which is basically the same thing in the chemicals industry there's no reason why we shouldn't pay a bit of money and stay in that there's quite a few scientific bodies Mm. and science research bodies that the eu would have been perfectly willing to let us stay in if we would just offer them a bit of money and made the right noises which would be of huge benefit things like erasmus yes Uh, the horizon scheme we are supposed to rejoin uh, both both to stay in but that's the one on uh, research cooperation across European universities. But that's collapsing, basically, because nobody trusts the UK at the moment. So they're basically not agreeing to any of these deals. So British universities are losing out on reputation and money and research projects and all kinds of things. That would make common sense to, to rejoin. There's probably a dozen of these things that most people would never notice hmm. if, you just, if you just quietly rejoined them and paid a bit of money. So you're talking about... And, and actually, the most sensible thing to do would be to do what the Brexiteers said we would do, which was 
actually stay in the single market. A lot, a lot of Brexiteers before the referendum said, oh, no, we'll stay in the single market. We'll just leave the customs union and make our own trade deals. Yes. Uh, and so you would end up like Norway, where you you belong to the single market. You pay the EU some money, although it's not it's never specifically said that's for membership of the single market. It's for other things. But basically, you have to pay into the pot to be allowed to take advantage of the of the workings of the EU. And but it's cheaper than when we were a member. You wouldn't have a say around the table. You wouldn't have a say on future direction of the EU, future regulations, you just have to accept them. But you'd be in the single market, uh, and that would be a huge benefit. Yes, although you'd be painted as a rule taker uh, rather than a rule maker, which kind of you know brings us back to, to, to something that a lot, of, a lot of readers said, where they said there is no real version of a successful Brexit. I mean, that's a, that's a version of a that's a, a version of Brexit that could work, but it, but it, then it does it does leave you uh, outside the club and accepting of the club's uh, rules without really being a, a, a member of, of of the club. What do you, what do you say to that? I mean, it's not even an ideological a, a thing of ideological purity. Is there is there yeah, a yeah. better version of Brexit that could be achieved? Do you, do you think? Well, the, the, you know, the best version of Brexit is one that gives you as many of the benefits of, of staying in the EU as possible. Yes. So that would be the single market. Yeah. Uh, there isn't there isn't a one a Brexit. You know, there's this Brexit dream of we leave and we become Singapore on Thames and everything becomes light regulation and we all become richer. It's complete tosh. Hmm. It's it's just a fantasy land. Um, right wing, very rich people, uh, hoping to force down wages and and benefits and all kinds of things. Uh, it's completely incoherent and, and it just doesn't bear any economic analysis at all. So, um, yes, you want to be close. But, I mean, the trouble is the debate changed. So I don't, I don't know if I told you the story, but I went to Norway before the referendum to do a documentary on, you know, what what is Norway's membership of the um, single market like and would it work for the UK? And it was really interesting. I spoke to politicians and business leaders and farmers and fishermen and you know, all this kind of stuff. And companies that have benefited from the single market and some that have been caught out by regulations. And in the end, the Norwegian said, look, this works for us. We just take the rules and implement them. But we're a small country with a massive oil sector and a small manufacturing sector. And we can afford it. You know, it, it just doesn't cost us that much. The UK, you'd be mad because you're a rule maker and you've got massive industries and you want to be around the table with your feet under every time, under the desk every time a decision is made. Don't do it. And that was the conclusion. I said that even the Norwegians say it wouldn't really work for us. Mm. It's not, not as bad as leaving altogether, but even you know, just being in the single market and outside the EU would be a bad thing for us. I got the biggest tsunami of abuse I've ever had on social media. The nicest which, uh, of which was, why are you such a lying bastard, you lying bastard? And yeah. it was all... I can't believe I sent you that. Yes, and it was all from Brexiteers saying, how dare you say we couldn't be like Norway? Of course we could be like Norway. It would be fantastic. The day after the referendum, that became treason. The idea that you could be like Norway was, oh, no, that's not real Brexit. That's, that's Brexit in name only. That's staying a slave state. That's being a rule taker, not a rule maker. And you can, that's what happened in the referendum. The, the ultras, who were only a small part of the Brexit gang, took over. And said, no, no, 50% of people, 52% of people voted for the most extreme form of Brexit, and that's what they're going to get. So that is part, that's really the problem that 
it doesn't matter what you offer them, they want to take more. It doesn't matter which image of Brexit you end up with, it's not the right one because nearly every Brexiteer has their own different version of Brexit. And a couple of, I do, I do want to wrap this up because I, I know I've taken up too much of your time, but a couple of people did did make the point of, of so say Starmer does win the next election or there's a, you know, the, the Tories are out of office at the next election. What then happens to the Tory party? Does that then open up? you know, the, the the opportunity to rejoin, because presumably then there's a, a Tory party, either the sensible wing reclaims the Tory party or there's a Tory party split and people like Farage go off to, to form their own party, possibly with people like Rhys Mogg. I don't know. Well, it's, 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 it's impossible to tell, really, isn't it? But the Conservative Party seems to have managed to stay together for a very long time mm. because it's more interested in power than power. any particular policy, I think. And if you look at the, the situation now, the, the Brexiteers have completely taken over. They, the second they got in, they did exactly what uh, the previous Tory leaders hadn't done to them and kicked out the people who didn't believe in Brexit. Uh, you know, it, it's my, my brother actually famously says it's, it's all John Major's fault. If, if when he said, you know, it's better to keep these people in the tent um, rather than have them outside the tent, if he just kicked out six MPs in 1990-something, uh, we wouldn't have had this problem at all. Uh, the Conservative Party would have remained pro-European. They would have disappeared and joined UKIP and probably lost their seats. And it all would have been over. But it wasn't. It was They were allowed to campaign and campaign and campaign and campaign. And they were never going to stop. So I, I phoned up the UKIP headquarters many years ago and I said, I know you keep going on about a referendum, but what happens if you have a referendum and we vote to stay in? And they just went, we'll have another one. We're, we're not, and then we'll have one after that. We'll have one until we win. And that's their policy. The Conservative Party has been taken over by these people and they're never going to stop. So either there's a radical change in British politics and, and people wake up and kind of go, hang on, the Conservative Party has been taken over by you know the, the militant tendency of the right and won't have anything to do with them, or, or they will continue with this policy. And they seem perfectly happy to say, you know, to say oh, well, the, you know, the, any economic cost is down to COVID and now it will be down to Ukraine mm. or it will be down to something else. The benefit, all these trade deals are wonderful, even though their own analysis shows they're absolutely meaningless. The Treasury sits on its own economic forecast of the damage done and nobody knows what they say because they don't publish it. Uh, they all know that this is economically damaging. We all know, looking at Ukraine, that we're outside the tent and we have to be invited to meetings and we're not a leading and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, for, you know, it's just dusted off as it doesn't really matter. No, it's not true. We're a new global power. Well, we're not a global power. Um, we're never going to be a global power again, and we're not as significant a European power as we were. Well, maybe there's a way to maybe there's a way to to uh, to get that back uh, at some point. Where I'm sure we will talk about this on many occasions. Uh, thanks very much, John C. Bloom. Thank you, Steve. Been a pleasure. John C. Bloom, thank you for joining us. You can read more from John C. in the current issue of The New European. To get full access to the archive of all the pieces John C. has written for us, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And on the back of John C.'s piece about farming, we ask listeners of this podcast, what farm work would you like to see members of the Cabinet take on? Susan Zazikowski says, cleaning out the Augean stables for all eternity in hell. Eric King says muck spreading is something the cabinets have already proved uh, that they're competent at. 
Greg Sharp says, uh, the Somerset Sponger, Reese Moore, would make a good scarecrow. Alex Campbell said he'd like to see the, the cabinet working on an eel farm. It's difficult to know who'd be more slippery and slimy. Wendy Alston said she'd like to see the government looking after the pigs and their troughs where they would feel right at home. And Chris Walford said, I'd like to see them all imitating turnips up to their necks in mud trampled by sheep. On Twitter, at JCS1956, said he'd like to see the cabinet shoveling dung and living in broken down caravans, to which at Binghamin replied, you're prepared to put a roof over their heads. I think that's very generous. Before the Hall of Shame, I wanted to remind you about another excellent podcast from The New European. Great European Lives with Charlie Connolly. It tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bites. A superb listen. It's available where you got this podcast. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, uh, where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians, things that get my goat generally. And one more mention of James Cleverly then in the Hall of Shame, because this week, when he was asked why Boris Johnson gave a peerage to Evgeny Lebedev, considering what Evgeny Lebedev's father did for a living, James Cleverly replied, my father is a former chartered surveyor. What your father did for a living is not relevant. Well, I would say it's not relevant when you get a peerage and your dad is a former chartered surveyor. It just might be relevant when you get a peerage and your dad is a former KGB agent and close colleague of Vladimir Putin's who's now an oligarch. And Whittacombe is always in the Hall of Shame for writing the worst column in Britain in the worst newspaper in Britain, the Daily Express. And Whittacombe writes this week, stop listening to Greta Thunberg on climate change and start listening to Nigel Farage. No, I think that's that one dealt with. Pretty Patel is, of course, in the Hall of Shame, a bully who's still Home Secretary while John Burko's banned from Westminster for bullying. And now there are suggestions that Pretty Patel might lose her job for failing to help enough refugees come to the UK. A couple of things there for Alanis Morissette to ponder. I wonder what she would call it. Geoffrey Archer is in the Hall of Shame for banning his new book from being sold in Russia. For God's sake, let's not start being nice to them. But on the coldest, lowest circle of the Hall of Shame this week is Daniel Kaczynski, the Conservative MP for Shrewsbury and Atcham. He said this week it would be immoral and illiterate for Britain to take in more Ukrainian refugees, immoral and illiterate. This is the same Daniel Kaczynski who's claimed £22,000 for Polish lessons, despite being what he describes as an almost fluent Polish speaker. And the same Daniel Kaczynski, who uh, only a few weeks ago was suspended from the Commons after being found guilty of bullying his staff. How's that for immoral? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to John T. Bloom. Thanks to you for listening, as always. And thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe and give us lovely reviews where you can. And listen to our new podcast, The 27. It's available in this podcast stream. And don't forget Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, if you like what we do, please subscribe to The New European, theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social, join our Facebook readers group and follow us on Twitter at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E. S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, 
So long, snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.